0: We're in a part two of our study of Romans, and today's going to be kind of uh, another, in many respects, kind of an introduction part two. Because um, my, in, my endeavor as we go through the book is to, to really tackle sections and to focus in on Paul's central thesis. Uh, but today, in these first 17 verses, you kind of get an assortment of things thrown out uh, as, he's, as he's laying the groundwork. For what's to come in the rest of the chapter. So, um, once I got into this, I decided to drop anchor at verse seventeen instead of uh, continuing on through the end of chapter one. There was just so much, and I think particularly the last section of chapter one um, is is uh, there's so much there that that it warrants another another Sunday to look at that. So, today we are going to look at the first seventeen verses. And um, essentially our outline for today is, uh, I'm going to start with some brief review of last week. Uh, we're going to look at then how Paul lays the groundwork for who he is as an apostle and why he's writing. And um, then he sets his personal agenda and affirms his love for them. And uh, then he gives his, uh, the, the central thesis of the letter. And um, so that's kind of just going to guide our our four kind of main areas of focus this morning. So, as always, um, if you've got questions about what Paul says, about what we're talking about, just let me know and uh, we'll pause and and have some discussion. But uh, just to briefly review what we talked about last week, um, our goal is a chapter-by-chapter study to to really grasp the central message of the book. We're not going to be able to dive into every little detail, but we want to get As I love to say, the big picture here. Um, Why are we doing this study? I argued last week that Romans is the nearest thing to a systematic theology in Scripture. Um, I I argue that it is perhaps the key to interpreting the rest of Scripture. And um, really, uh, that comes out in the central message of Romans, which is the Gospel, Jew and Gentile relations specifically. But it comes out in the inclusio, that's um, at the beginning and the end of the book. Um, that supports uh, not only the gospel being the central message of Romans, but it supports um, um, what, it supports what I just argued that that Romans is perhaps the key to interpreting to rightly interpreting the rest of Scripture. Who remembers what an inclusio is? Mary? It's like an opening statement at the beginning of the chapter of the book and then a the closing one that Paul actually writes it. Yes, yeah. Book ends, opening and closing, and the opening and the closing not only reveal this is my point, this is what I'm talking about, uh, but but it also Um, it gives us a key to rightly interpreting what's in the middle. So, uh, that inclusio that we looked at um, tells us that the letter reveals, explains, the gospel that was present, but hidden in the Old Testament, and now fully revealed in light of the New. And so, That's why Romans is, as I called it, a systematic theology, a summary of the gospel. It's a summary of what the scriptures teach from Old Testament to New Testament. Paul is saying, the reason I'm writing, what I'm explaining to you, is what the Old Testament teaches. And what has now come to fulfillment in Christ. That's what Romans is about. Mark? Yeah. i always I would to heard what the Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them everything from the Old Testament that spoke of him. And I think the answer to your, your last question there, what, what did he tell him? Um, the, the, the Gospel of Luke was also uh, authored by the, the Acts of the Apostles. Luke... Luke is the one who wrote both books, Luke and Acts. And I think, I think there's some clues in Acts that tell us, basically, we see the sermons of the apostles, kind of insight into what Jesus taught them on the road to Emmaus. Not the specifics, of course, which we'd have loved to have been there, but in general, we see that in in practice. And yes, absolutely, Romans is, is another example of that. Um. And remember as well that the kind of the purpose and the goal that Paul writes. We saw to bring about the obedience of faith. He writes in the beginning and of course in the end as well. To bring about the obedience of faith. Um, he writes with that end in mind and our study must be with this end in mind as well. We're going to get to this in, 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 in a few moments when we get to verse 16 and 17. Um. But he he writes to reveal the gospel so that the gospel takes root in the hearts and lives of God's people, which brings about obedience to God, love for God, living in light of the gospel. Um, It's faith and practice. It's it's the theology, but also the obedience as well. They go together. So um, that's what we covered last week. Is um, kind of intro to that, and you can find the sermon up on our website. Uh, the I'm sorry, the lesson up on our website. If you want to hear that in more detail, but let's turn to Romans one, uh, one through seven. And with these three sections that we're going to listen, to, uh, that we're going to study, if I can just ask three people to find them and um, and to read them out loud for us um, at the beginning of our of each point here. But here what we're getting is, is who Paul is, why he's writing, and, and, and he taps into the authority of the gospel that he's about to uh, proclaim. So, volunteer to read verses 1, 1 through 1-7. Don't all volunteer at once. Mark, thank you. Excellent. Thank you. <clears throat> um, don't want to jump into everything that, um, you know, we, we looked at this section last week, so I'm not going to hit on everything here. Uh, but I, I, want, I do want you to notice a few uh, key details that, that serve, um, uh, they're important to, to understanding um, how Paul begins in chapter 1 and, and, of course, where he goes from there. Um, but, but we have this, stuff. of course, he, he starts with his, with his typical way. Um, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm called to be an apostle. I've been set apart for the gospel. Um, servant, the, the word here is doulos, and uh, I preached on this from Ephesians a few weeks ago. But um, the, the, the meaning of the word is slave. It's not servant. Servant is somebody who's hired. Um, in, in the first century world, a doulos always had a master um it, somebody who owned them so um in, in this sense um if, yeah we can understand it as as servant if we want to i mean we can translate it as servant as we want to but ultimately um he's he's pinpointing the fact he's emphasizing the fact that he has a master uh that there is a lord over him that he is acting um in light of the fact that Christ is his master and Lord. that what he's doing, what he's writing, is, in, is, is um, a manifestation of that. And, and this is brought out as well when it says called to be an apostle. An apostle was a sent one. Right? You don't send yourself. An apostle is somebody who is sent by another. So he had this divine commission. Paul saying in this respect that um, th- this isn't just me. This isn't just a bright idea that I had. This isn't just me trying to impose my will on you, a congregation that I've never met. I'm a slave to Christ and I'm fulfilling the commission that He sent me to fulfill. And this is key as well when we emphasize the fact he says, I've been set apart for what? and set apart for the gospel, the gospel of God. This is not my message. Again, this is not my bright idea. This is not just my interpretation of the Old Testament. If we think about this, um, what does does the word gospel mean? I, I hope that you know this. I talk about this all the time. But, like, just, just the word, what does the word gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Excellent. Um, and in the first century world, it was, um, you know, in our day, it's taken on Christian meaning. You know, we talk about, oh, yeah, that's gospel around here. Um, we all know what the gospel is. But, but in the first century world, it had a very particular usage. Um, in the first century world, gospel referred to an announcement, a declaration of victory by a herald. Most specifically, um, in the context of of war. It was the one who came running back from the battlefield, back to the normal people, to say, look, on this far-off battlefield, a victory has been won. I've got good news. You know, the enemy has defeated And our people have prevailed. And and, and in that sense, you know, if we understand it in light of what the gospel of God, Paul is saying, just even in that term, the gospel is not good advice to be followed, it's not instructions for what you must do. It is what God has done for us in Christ, heard and received by faith. I love the illustration that. That Dr. Mike Horton all, uh, often uses of of New York Times uh, Times Square Times Square um, at the end of World War II, and of course you have the the famous picture of of the sailor kissing the nurse, you know. Um, and there's this huge celebration. Um, you know, the, the the battle was won on far off continents. You know, um, you know, VJ Day would be in uh, Japan, of course, and then victory in Europe. Um, But the report from the battlefield came back to all the the common folk, as it were, that that the U.S., um, the allies had prevailed, and a celebration ensued. Um, and And it changed the way that people conducted their lives from then on out. The gospel, then, is what God has done for us in Christ, heard and received by faith. It's Primarily, its most specific definition. And so... What are the implications of this? You know, I mentioned before, it's not good advice, it's not good news to be followed, essentially, even though it does call for a response. The implications of it being the gospel of God, the good news of God, is again, Paul is saying it's not mine. It didn't originate with me. I didn't win the victory. I didn't sin myself. I'm not a a slave to myself, a servant to myself. And I've been set apart for the gospel of God, not the gospel of Paul. This is God's gospel. And, And by implication, we ought to derive from that as well. We're not free to edit or refashion the gospel according to our own preferences. We're not free to make it more appealing, more palatable to, 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 to other people. We have this kind of same kind of commission in the sense of um, we've been bought with a price. We have a master. We are a slave of Christ. Not only that, but, but we have a divine commission in the Great Commission. And we, too, are announcing the victory that Christ has won. You know, not, not our, our own personal journey and victory over the demons in our own life, but what Christ has done. And we must stick to that message as heralds and ambassadors of Christ. Um, the reason I bring this out is because, and we're going to get into this next week, but it's very important for, for what follows um, next in chapter 1. Think about the end of chapter 1. The wrath of God. Who likes to talk about the wrath of God? I mean, how appealing to that is that to an unbeliever? Um, think about um, uh, you know, the sins that he details in Romans chapter 1. Right? And the big one nowadays is homosexuality. And you know, there, there are many Christians who are going to try to make that more palatable to an unbelieving world. What this should show us is that the sins there, um, even the way in which Paul begins to explain the gospel, um, it's not just Paul's opinion, as some people argue nowadays. Those lists of sins are just sins that Paul had an issue with or were popular in his day. Or the way that he starts explaining the gospel with the wrath of God. Uh, That was just his personal preference. We need to start with the love of God. We can learn a lot just by thinking about how Paul begins before he even gets to what is explained at the end of chapter 1. We can't explain the gospel, we can't proclaim the gospel without talking about sin and the wrath of God. So, how do we know then that this isn't just Paul's gospel? Um, briefly recapping what we talked about last week. Um, he goes on to say, what is this gospel of God? He gives definition to it. It's a gospel promised through the prophets. It concerned Christ, um, who was descended from David and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit by the resurrection of the dead. It was promised in the old. It was brought to human history in Christ. Jesus was descended from David. If you want to dive into this detail uh, in detail, you can look at uh, cross-reference 2 Samuel uh, chapter seven. Long ago, David, uh, uh, God made a, um, a messianic promise to David. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne. And according to the flesh, Paul is saying, this, this Jesus Christ is, is not a, a, um, a myth or a legend. Uh, he's a human being. He's David's son. He's the fulfillment of that promise. He's fully human as well. And then we get this declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Um, He's also fully divine. So we have the, the full divinity and the full humanity of Jesus here just in the opening chapters of Romans. And shows us how the resurrection removes all doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. That historical event of the resurrection is the crux of the gospel. That is that victory on the battlefield that has been won on our behalf, the good news of the gospel. So, just to, to put that all together, um, Paul wants us to know that the gospel is not about him, it's about Christ, it's not about us either in our hopes and dreams and inspiration. Um, this resurrection means that our own resurrection has begun. To all those who um, uh, are loved by God and called to be saints, that's the effectual call, he's saying, even you, even though you're not connected to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you have been called by God, you are in Christ Jesus, that resurrection and that new life has begun in you as well. Paul then, as just simply a messenger, a divine herald who proclaims to us, Uh, That victory, and thus we can conclude what follows isn't just his opinion; it is the Old Testament gospel revealed in the New Testament in light of Christ. I kind of blitzed through that last section because we got to get going. But any uh, any questions on this these first seven verses? Good. All right. 8-14. Um, <clears throat> this is where he, he moves and adds a personal note. He affirms his love for them, his prayers for them, and his desire to see them. I volunteer to read 8-14. Jordan. Jordan. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, verse 15. Thank you, Jordan. Um, All right. Paul, adding a personal note here, um, explaining his love for them. I mention you always in my prayer, I really want to see you. Uh, there, there is a personal note to that, but I think that also we can derive some, uh, that there's a theological um, uh, truth behind this as well. Um, here, uh, he exemplifies what it means to be a slave of Christ. Um, his calling is to serve people, to serve them by praying for them, to serve them by seeking to encourage them, Right? The, the anxieties and the burdens of his heart are not on his personal situation, primarily, but upon the spiritual good of the people that he loves. And so he, he example, exemplifies the, the, the pastoral call. He exemplifies the, um, the, the slave of Christ. But, but I think he also exemplifies um, what the obedience of the faith looks like. It's a, it's a communal obedience. It is loving God and loving neighbor. He is concerned for them, and this spills over in prayers and desiring to encourage them. I long to see you, he says, that we might be mutually encouraged. Um, I just think it's amazing that he sought not only to encourage the church, but he, was, he also sought encouragement from the church as well. Paul's an apostle. You, you would think, uh, this guy's got it all together. He's seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He's ascended to the third heaven. He's got gifts um, unlike anybody in the Roman church. But he even recognized, I need encouragement from you too. He's a humble man. Uh, he's a man that, that knows that uh, how God gives gifts to the church for the mutual strengthening of His people. And, and we, can learn, we can learn a lot from that. Everybody in this sense. Um, um, nobody is above this. Everyone um, in the body of Christ needs the body of Christ. And there is mutual encouragement um, in the fellowship of faith. In one another. Pretty, pretty obvious truths, but it, it, it's, it's cool how it bring, uh, Paul brings it out um, even in the beginning of this letter. Um, you knew I was going to go there, okay? Right? But think about this in relation to our digital age and our online Zoom meetings. Um, you know, if Paul sought encouragement from other believers, how much more should we? Um, if Paul sought encouragement by seeing them face to face, how much more should we? Right, um very before, the assembly of god's people it's an essential service. Uh, we did suspend services for a while and and you know uh what we, we did that for like five weeks, I think um, you know um, there is uh, you know um, in some sense, uh, I believe that was necessary for a time uh, there there is of course um Sometimes good reasons for temporarily suspending services, but, but long term, we need each other. And we need to, uh, as he says here, to see one another so that we might impart spiritual gifts to strengthen one another. And to be encouraged by each other's faith. So, I thought that was an appropriate and timely um, reminder here in the first part. Mark? What it mean, Paul, here, though, that there is yep. Yep. It's my desire, but I'm being hindered right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 that's very good. As much as it's uh, possible for us um, in light of the providence of God, um, we we ought to see that as a, as an essential need of our of our of our souls of our faith, Ray. We are social creatures. God created us that way. Long term separation from another person, especially someone you care about, uh, the saints in the church, as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another. Yeah. That is not the same. Yeah. Can never be. Yeah, it's not. And you know, it, it, when he is providentially hindered, he does write a letter. And when we were providentially hindered, we, we had that, that Zoom meeting going on, you know. Um, but ultimately, not a long-term solution. It's not healthy in the long term. You're right. We, we, um, um, we're social creatures. And more than that, just socially created, the body of Christ is, is socially formed. Uh, it's integral to the body itself, is the fact that, that we're communal. And... Um, uh, we all have various gifts and strength, uh, strengths and weaknesses that only the fellowship of God's people um, um, serves to sustain us and kind of balance us out in that respect. Very good, Mary? Well, I think there are, there are reasons from, um, that are evident from the light of reason, just as we are social creatures. But I do think that there, is, there are spiritual um, reasons as well. And you know, you're, you're diving into a, a deep theological topic. Um, but, um, you know, for example, we're, we're physical creatures. The Lord gives us real bread and real wine in the Lord's Supper. Um, you know, he could have just given us a metaphor. He could have just spoken to us. He just—he could have communicated another way. But, but there is there is spiritual vitality in the physical nature of eating bread and wine and drinking wine. There, there, there's something there. Um, we talk about our faith, um, our our ultimate salvation. We have union with Christ right now. We have fellowship through the Spirit. Uh, we are we are one with him. We sit and reign with him. But ultimately, our our, our final hope is to see him face to face, and that is the Christian hope when, when our when our bodies are raised from the dead and we are actually in his very presence. Um, there, there's nothing more intimate than the union we have with Christ. The union we have with him is more intimate than the the, the union that a man and a woman enjoy in marriage. But that union still awaits the physical aspect of being in the presence of one another. And so I, I realize that's kind of theological, uh, but that's where I would begin and and argue that without a doubt, those other means are helpful and in times of difficulty uh, ought to be pursued. But as much as it is possible and safe in some respect, it's never going to be fully safe, but safe, uh, we ought to seek the the. Uh, the the fellowship of one another. Sophie. Yeah. Being separated from Mark for fifteen months. <laughs> and Zoom did not yeah. Uh, boy, that um, that's deployment has. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a good analogy. Sophie. Oh, that's good, yeah. Well, coming to college did the whole seeing... Okay. <laughs> Doug? I was going back to that providentially hindered. Mm-hmm. Maybe Paul was providentially hindered so that he would have to write. And now we can read it, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, so yep. maybe his way of Paul to write letters the For our benefit, later. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe kind of piggybacking on that, um, if you think about our five weeks of, of Zoom meetings and not meeting um, corporately, um, you know, one good thing that came out of that is for me and for many others, it really kind of um, highlighted in our lives, hearts, uh, lives, the importance of meeting together. And it, it served to kind of refresh that longing and appreciation for the, for the corporate body of Christ. Same with the Lord's Supper, when we didn't observe the Supper for a long time. That, that first time back, it was like, oh yeah, this is, a, this is not to be taken for granted. This is a special gift. And so yeah, in God's providence, He used that to give us a book of Romans. And He uses times where we're not able to, to walk in these steps, uh, to do these things, uh, to, to work good in our lives as well. Awesome. All right. Um, so, one last note here. This is, this is um, I, I, I believe, important to the letter as well. He, he concludes by saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And, and I want you to think about that statement. Think about it. Um, how is he going to encourage them? He's not coming together for game nights, right? Sorry, Hannah, you know. Friendsgiving. See, I didn't say that. I just <laughs> which is really, really good stuff, really, really good. Thank you for, for, for doing that in our church. But he's coming together. He wants to see them to preach. That, that is how he is going to encourage them. He recognizes that's his calling. He recognizes that's his gifts, his gift. And he recognizes that's what the church needs to be encouraged by me. Preaching. But also think about who does he want to preach the gospel to? You know, he says here to Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Uh, undoubtedly, he's saying, I want to come to Rome and I, I, want, to, I want to evangelize. Um, in, the, in, in that sense, I, I want, you know, I want to spread the knowledge of the gospel, but he also says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Think, think about that statement. He just said that he's writing to a church. they're called by God. They're saints, they're believers, they're part of the body of Christ. Um, don't let anyone tell you that preaching is outdated. Or that the gospel is only for unbelievers. He wants to preach the gospel to a bunch of people who already know the gospel. Um, It's really foundational to understanding um, Christian ministry. The ministry of the word in the pulpit. The ministry of the church. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. Okay, now you're right with God. Now let's focus on the law and how you need to grow as a Christian. The gospel is for Christians. We continually need to be told we are justified by faith on the basis of Christ's merits. We continually need to be told all of the benefits um, uh, of sanctification, of redemption, of of glorification, of justification, uh, because you know as luther said i need to be told the gospel because i forget it every day the christian life is going a process of going deeper and deeper into the gospel and drawing out those implications and so he's saying look i i want to come preach the gospel to you what you already know and that's instructive for us as well any questions before we move to this last section. Doug? Our Jerry Bridges used to always say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Yes. Yeah, I remember one time I tried to find the, uh, the, the I guess, where that came from. And uh, the earliest I could find it was with Luther. Um, I'm sure it, it predated him as well. Um, and he wouldn't use the word preach himself because... To himself, because sometimes, you know, <laughs> well, can you really preach to yourself? You need someone to preach to you. You can talk to yourself. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the, the point is well made. Um, yeah, every single day, um, you know, part of being faithful in the Christian life is doing less listening to ourselves and more talking to ourselves. And part of our talking to ourselves is reminding ourselves. Of the gospel every single day, because everything around us um, calls that into question. Circumstances, difficulties, struggles with sin—Satan um, uses that to to uh, disrupt our hope and our confidence. And um, being grounded in the gospel means being familiar with it every single day. Ray. I The gospel is basically non-existent as far as being preached. Yeah. Yeah. Tough questions to, uh, to entertain when you think about the Dark Ages, for sure. But I think in many respects, there were lights of the gospel here and there. And, um, you know, even with all of the uh, uh, all of the traditions and the darkening by the Roman Catholic Church and the medieval church, um, you know, there's still a prominent place given to the word of God and the word of God carries its own power. Um, but yeah, uh, good thought. Well, let's conclude by this third and last section, um, which we get the thesis of the of the letter, which is the essence, the power, and the scope of the gospel. Um, I've got like nine minutes, unfortunately, so I'm going to have to speed through some of this. Um, Killer, because this is the the best section. But um, uh, I'll just read sixteen, seventeen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, What is so special about the gospel that Paul would want to preach it to people who already know it? Um, Why does he emphasize it in the beginning of the letter and in the end of the letter? And everything in between. Because, this is obvious, it is the power of God unto salvation. It doesn't just bring power, it is power. It is the power of God in this world, it is the power of God evident in this age. It is the means through which God frees sinners from bondage and raises them to new life. It is the power of God unto salvation. So, in this respect, when God speaks, it's an act of new creation, like in Genesis 1, when God says, Let there be light, and there was light, in the very same way, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6, what we proclaim, there's a speaking, is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, let there be light, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul drawing an analogy there between God speaking in creation and God speaking in the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. So it is. Creates new life, it nourishes new life, it completes new life, or maybe look at it as the beginning, the middle, and the end of our salvation. The gospel is for Christians because it is the power of God to us at every stage of our spiritual walk. It's when we talk about preaching as a means of grace, the word of God as a means of grace. It is a channel in which, a divinely um, 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 ordained channel through which God has said, this is how my power, my blessings, my spirit, enter into this world and take root in human hearts. That's why he wants to preach it. So... um, what then is the nature of this gospel? That this power of God? In it, the righteousness of God, or I, should, I think it's best translated, the righteousness from God, that preposition there could go either way, is revealed. It's manifested. It's made known. It's evident. It's put on display. It's announced. The righteousness from God is announced. It's seen. The gospel reveals how God can forgive and redeem people and remain righteous, which he covers in chapter 3. And he does this by giving us his righteousness, the righteousness from God, that is received by faith alone. That's why Paul uses this word, "from faith for faith." What does that mean? In light of what I just said, "from faith for faith," the righteousness of God from faith for faith. Strengthening of faith. Say what? Strengthening of faith. Yes, yes, that's part of it. Um, Well, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here, and uh, i got to speed through this. But if you want to kind of understand this point, it's helpful to look back at Habakkuk 2.4. To to give you Habakkuk 2.4 in a nutshell, God is using, he's telling Habakkuk that the the, the wicked pagan Chaldeans um, are going to punish Israel, and they're going to carry them off into captivity because Israel had broken the covenant. Habakkuk is stunned. Uh, How can this be? I mean, don't you know who those people are? Um, don't you see their sin? They are, they are they're way more evil than the people of God, even if we have stumbled. They're wicked. They are pagan. They're, 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 they're depraved in every respect, and you're going to use them to punish Israel? And, and God responds, well, the just shall live by faith. I, I see their sin. You need to trust me. I know who is truly righteous, and circumstances, Habakkuk, Israel, do not indicate your standing before God, truly. Right standing with God is only a matter of faith. And so you need to live in light of this reality. So, so bringing that into Romans 1, 16 and 17, from faith for faith... The righteousness of God, from God as a gift, is only received by faith. The righteousness that comes from faith. From faith. And that is given that we might then walk by faith, for faith. That we might not walk in our own righteousness. That's what from faith for faith means. The righteousness received by faith that you might walk in faith. And this also is the obedience of faith. I know I'm throwing a, I'm throwing a lot on you here. I'm trying to kind of wrap up here on our, on our final two minutes. Um, so you understand what he's saying there. God's righteousness to forgive is revealed in the gospel because Christ was punished in our place. And God has revealed this so that we might receive his righteousness and thus live in this righteousness. The the righteous shall live by faith. That's his point, that's the gospel. Uh, one last thing here. What does it mean I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Very important. He's not ashamed of the message. I would say as well, he's not ashamed of the means. The message of the cross is foolishness. Righteousness that comes by faith and not personal resolve or personal merit. is, is doesn't make any sense in the eyes of the world. The means by which it's proclaimed a lowly servant, not in the powerful words of wisdom, not with signs and wonders and life transformations, this is what he's not ashamed of. And so I think in our day, you know, how, how is this still relevant in our day? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> The church can so easily become ashamed of the gospel. We become ashamed of, 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 of how the gospel calls us to live righteously. Um, we become ashamed of how the gospel declares that we are depraved and, and, and dead in our sins outside of Christ. We become ashamed that um, the, the, this gospel is, is spread and unleashed in the world through the preaching of it. Uh, we, we, you know, all these ways that, that we are ashamed, we want to come up with better methods, we want to come up with better strategies, we want to come up with, with a better message, we want to um, make it more appealing, we want to seem cool in the eyes of the world, all of these things. Paul is saying, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. And so, um, with that, we've got to bring this to a conclusion. Um, any final... Well, let me, let me do this first. Just to, to summarize everything here, what we saw today. If Paul was simply a, a slave of Christ, sent on the mission to his Master, if he needed the encouragement of other believers, if he simply trusted in the power of the Gospel to do its work, this has a lot to teach us in our day. Um, we are called to proclaim the message. We are called not to adapt it, but to do so boldly without being ashamed. And this gospel that we proclaim is the righteousness of God revealed. It is how that we walk by faith and this righteousness from God, excuse me, from God for faith is, is what the next 15 and a half chapters ultimately expound. So, any final questions or comments? Uh, next week we'll be looking at that last section of Romans 1, the wrath of God. Any final words? Be connected. in his presence in Okay. Yeah. So part of living by faith is that we see dimly, and that one day we will see fully. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and that's what Habakkuk was being told as well. Uh, you, you're seeing, you know, um, all hell break loose, um, and God's people punished. But you've you've got you see through a, a dim glass now. <laughs> I've got a greater purpose in this, a greater end in mind. Yeah, it's a good point. All right, sorry to speed through that last section. Um, I have a feeling that's going to be pretty common for us as we try to ca- <laughs> tackle one chapter a week from here forward, right? But um, let's go ahead and close in prayer.